It's the True Penny Show with your host, James True Penny. Hello and welcome to the True Penny Show. My name is James True Penny. This is my show, and today we have reached a momentous junction in our beginner's guide to professional wrestling in Japan. We're talking about Giant Baba, as we have done quite a lot recently on the Beginner's Guide, but we are talking about his sad demise. And we're also talking about the memorial show that all Japan Pro Wrestling put together in 1999 at the Tokyo Dome. Now, this is obviously a fairly serious and deep, dark subject, which we will get into shortly. However, there is some good wrestling to add. It's not going to be all misery, because at the minute, the world is all misery. Um, but to join me today is one of my best wrestling friends, Mr. Alex Watt, to discuss this momentous occasion. How are you, sir? Hello, yeah, I'm good. Thanks for thanks for having me. As always, it's been a while. Uh, just been saying before we start recording how out the loop I am <laughs> on modern wrestling, like slightly behind on a lot of a lot of stuff because of life, <laughs> the chaos of life, basically. But yeah, this was I've never seen this show before, so it was it was really interesting and like in the context of kind of the next year or two from '99 onwards with all Japan and the fallout, it was it was really fascinating to go back and look at this in in kind of the context as we know it now. It is really it's it's really a fun show, um, which obviously came out of a great tragedy. Mm. Uh, it's it's um yeah it's difficult to think that it was 21 years ago to be honest with you you know because a lot of the action on this that from just from an actual pure action card a lot of the stuff would pass quite easily on any japanese company show now yeah definitely. Um, and it, you you kind of see how much the tone is set for the next 20 years um there are guys on this card who are young boys on this card who will become the cornerstones of Japanese professional wrestling for the next two decades, and are still wrestling to this day, and are bookers or trainers. And the older generation um, are just incredible wrestlers. You know, it's it's really it's really scary to think how much like concentrated talent there was in one place. Mm. <clears throat> but we first should talk about um, uh, the death of Giant Shohei Baba, which was. Um, in uh, January of 1999, I was taken to hospital and confined to bed. He saw his last wrestling match on January the 22nd as Toshiya Kawada defeated Mitsuru Misawa for the Triple Crown. Nine days later, on January the 31st, Baba had died of liver failure from complications of colon cancer at Tokyo Medical University Hospital. He was only 61 years old. And you've got to bear in mind, he packed an awful lot into those 61 years. He was a professional baseball player, professional wrestler, and arguably the greatest booker of all time. Mm. I, I, I would, I would doubt Vince McMahon made as much money as Giant, Giant Baba did in the same time period in the 1990s. And as a, he, he literally had everything. He had creative genius. He was the best artistic booker in wrestling. I don't think anyone would argue with that. And he was making money hand over fist. Would you agree? I would, yeah. I mean, just as his sort of legacy, like one of the most important figures in the history of Japanese wrestling, Giant Baba, you know, we've obviously spoken on various podcasts. <laughs> I have, you have, you know, one of, first of all, one of the most popular wrestlers in his homeland ever. 
I think in his prime, they said like his popularity in Japan was comparable to Hulk Hogan's in the US, which yeah. shows you kind of how how big a star he was. And then, as you say, like his continued importance beyond that in founding all Japan, not just being the president and the face of that promotion, but the lead booker, the promoter, the head trainer, like bringing through all this young talent that would then be the cornerstone of Japanese wrestling for decades. Um, and this kind of, you know, the 90s boom period with all Japan, as you've touched on there, the King's Road style that he invented, really. <laughs> so, you know, he invented a whole style of wrestling for a company that is still, you know, being incorporated into the modern style of wrestling now. So his legacy is kind of unmatched really in terms of what he gave to not just Japanese wrestling but worldwide wrestling so yeah his death understandably was huge news that devastated a a whole nation really yeah and then you only have to look at the way the man lived his life he also the way the man lived his death he knew he was suffering from cancer he didn't tell anyone except his closest relatives um and so it came as a bit of a shock to his uh, his right-hand men, Jumbo Saruta, Mr. Haram Sao, and Joey Gucci, who were mm. the guys running the company with him. Um, but he wanted to make sure that all Japan had a legacy and that it would carry on and it didn't diminish without his guidance, um, which is both good and terrible in that, in that sense. <laughs> uh, you know, he, he was late to rest in... Um, Obviously, later in 1999, bizarrely, they could not find a casket big enough for him. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> I suppose, you know, it was on short notice after all. And that led AJPW to book in May after the memorial service, a memorial show, which was at Tokyo Dome, which is something All Japan shied away from throughout the 1990s. There are very few All Japan Tokyo Dome shows. The reason for that was they could just do Budokan and charge exorbitant amounts of money for it yeah. and get <laughs> as much money. <laughs> you know, they were getting as much money at Budokan for 14,000 people as New Japan were getting at the Tokyo Dome with 65,000 people. Crazy, that. <laughs> it just shows the, the popularity. Yeah, and there was also the kind of like the thought that it seemed more exclusive as well. Mm-hmm. You know, like New Japan was kind of like the populist kind of promotion in that sense, whereas All Japan was the bespoke, tailored wrestling company. Does that make sense? I think that's kind of, I think that was kind of the look he was after, really. Yeah, no, it absolutely was, because you think about like the isolationist policy even for through the nineties, whereas like New Japan was kind of talent trading, you know, guys were going to WCW and WWF getting this exposure in, in America. If you worked for All Japan, you worked for All Japan. And it was very, you were exclusively an All Japan talent. So that, yeah, I think that's definitely accurate. Yeah, the, the only people that actually managed to work both ends of the middle were the British Bulldogs. They only yeah. signed. <laughs> yeah. David Boy and Dynamite only signed with the WWE if they could keep their All Japan contracts. But it was made very clear to them there would never be WWF World Tag Team Champions if they kept working for Baba. Yeah. <laughs> So it was like, oh, all right then. <laughs> um, but equally, the moment they were done with WWF, Giant Baba was on the phone. So there you go. He knew which side his bread was buttered. Yeah. Uh, so let's kind talk of, about... Sorry, I was going to say, it kind of feeds interestingly into this, though, where you did maybe get guys more 
a little bit from other promotions or who were known from other promotions working this card because this was obviously like you say a big deal they're running the tokyo dome i think fifty-five thousand people attended which you know shows how you know how big this show was how important the show was for people to pay their respects you look at the names on the card you know they weren't they weren't messing around were they like all the big guys were there to pay their respects like you've obviously got Mizawa, Kabashi, Kawada but then you've got like the great Sasuke, Stan Hansen, Steve Williams, the Road Warriors, Vader are all there um, and then as you said at the top as well it's interesting to see some of the younger guys who we now know go on to big things like Marafuji, Takeshi Morishima, Kanemaru like it, it was interesting seeing all these kind of names pop up with like 19 and 20 year olds um, <laughs> versions of them. It was, yeah. Actually, it was 65,000 super no vacancy. They sold out the dome with this. Which is, which is really, well, yeah, Mysterio Misawa versus Vader for the Triple Crown on top. You're going to sell out the dome. That's the way it is, kids. Yeah, um, <laughs> it's quite yeah. a big deal, that yeah. But but like the fact that it was packed with with all these names, I think was massive. And yeah, people wanted to pay their respects to Baba because this was the first memorial show. And I mean, the show as a whole, it's like it's almost like a time capsule of of nineties all Japan. Like all the all the kind of big names from the nineties era are like present on the card. Um, which is his legacy, basically, you know, that that golden era of 90s old Japan wrestling. It's it's there on display. The fact that all those big names have come back to work this show, even, you know, some of them, <laughs> some of them getting on a bit by this point, you know, <laughs> but they've, they've come back to work this car to, to pay their respects, really. Yeah, they have. Definitely. So let's get to the first match, which was Naomichi Marafuji and Tayoshi Kikuchi, who was one of the Dynamite Kids protégés in all Japan Pro Wrestling. They defeated Grandi Niwa, who was on best crab-like behaviour for this card. He really was. <laughs> it's so hard not to be a bad guy. <laughs> oh, it was hilarious. And against Mikato Hashi, this is the first incidence of cross-promotion. Wally Yamaguchi must have been a busy man on this night, because there's a lot <laughs> of you and uh, Michinuku Pro Talent that have crossed over for this card. 15 minutes and 25 seconds. Now... This was a solid match. It was a lot of fun. It mm. just did. It's an opening tag match, which is what you want. Kikuchi is Kikuchi. He hits people really hard. Marafuji is kind of showing a lot of what you see in him today. Is that he? he you can see where he gets this that stoic presence that he has as the ace of a company, and you can see where he gets it from is from matches like this for years and years and years and grinding his way up the card, mm-hmm. and. This this was fun. I enjoyed what it for it for what it was. And and the new year, like I said, Naniwa really just trying very, very hard not to embarrass himself. <laughs> <laughs> Bless him. What did you think of this one, Alex? Yeah, it was like a fun all Japan tag opener, you know, blending the hard hitting stuff and the fun stuff, like you say, Grand Naniwa definitely bringing the fun aspect <laughs> as he tended to. <laughs> given that he did base most of his offense and mannerisms around acting like a crab, you know? So, um, <laughs> um, and yeah, it was just really interesting to see baby Marafuji, like 19, I believe at the time, like less yeah. than a year into his wrestling career. And he's opening a card this big already competing in the Tokyo Dome, which isn't 
it's not a bad gig that is it um no, not really no no and like the athleticism like casually hopping onto the top rope like manami toyota style um yeah. i don't think he can do that now given the shape his knees are in but yeah, just does it from time to time yeah he's He's still, he's still got, he's still got a little bit of that in him. But yeah, it's, it's interesting, you know, classic Japan, isn't it? You team the very young guy up with more of the veteran. Yeah. They work together very nicely. Few double team moves along the way. Um, obviously, all Japan were were very high on Marafuji to put him in that kind of spot when he was that young. Um, and even though, because obviously the style was or kind of the booking style is, you know, you're young, you're kind of a jobber for the first few years of your career. But he <laughs> but he was he got a lot of offense in here and I believe they end up they end up winning this match as well, don't they? So which was yeah. is kind of rare when you're, you know, the young guy. I think it's more to do with the fact that the I think the oldest guy is on his team and that's kind of how Japanese booking tends to work on who gets the pin. But yeah. If it means nothing, then the old guy wins. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's it's interesting. You know, we're kind of going to talk about this show, maybe bring in the context of, of the mass exodus in 2000. You know, it's fascinating that Marafuji was obviously part of that exodus a year later when he's 20 and then ended up becoming such an integral part of Noah and being the face of that promotion. Like... It's a big move to make when you're 20 years old. You know, he was obviously pretty confident in his abilities from from a young age. Yeah, I think that's the thing is you kind of looking at characters and where they've gone in the next 20 years. And he is a strong mental character. I read so I was reading on Twitter this week on bike racing fan as well. And I was reading about a guy who signed for the late Sim, uh, Marco Simoncelli. who passed away a few years ago as a MotoGP rider. He has a team. It's still named after him in his honor. And they've signed a rider who, at the age of 11 years old, got on his moped and drove to his friend's house 50 miles away and moved in so he could concentrate on bike racing. Wow. (laughs) And he's just signed with his first works team. And he's like 17. (laughs) There are people out there who have this sense of destiny about them. And Marafuji certainly looks like that. And I've got to say, I think you look at the seriousness around him in that locker room, in the All Japan locker room in the mid-90s. There's some serious wrestlers. Mm. I'm not talking about being miserable, though, generally speaking, there is a, there is a, <laughs> a general feel. I mean, I've listened to Rocky Romero, that when he worked for Noah, which had a lot of these guys on it, the bus was an awfully quiet place. Nobody <laughs> talked to It's a lot of intense dudes. Yeah. Like. <laughs> really intense dudes. Um, and I think that kind of matures you early. You know, there's, there is a sense about the old Japan locker room. And I discussed this the other week when me and uh, John Dinsdale looked at the big championship matches. You look at somebody like Jumbo Saruta who was a main eventer at like 23, 24. There's a lot of serious dudes in his locker room. You're like, Nick Bonquinkle, Terry Funk, Ric Flair, you know, he learned fast mm. to, to be that good. And it's the same thing here with people like Marifuji. He isn't going to stick with All Japan for a long period of time, but he's certainly learning, I've got to get on with this. If I'm going to be any good and have a legacy and be the man, I've got to get on now. Mm. I can't hang around. Well, yeah, I, you do have to pay your dues very, you know, while you're very young to build your way up the card in Japan. Yeah, but there's a, you also got to be and look at look at the names that we talk about now in modern New Japan Pro Wrestling. 
Jay White was what 24 when he came back and did his first main event run. Mm-hmm. And he's the best heel in wrestling, bar none right now. You still, even though you do have to put up with it as a rookie, you've still got to have, if you're not really cracking it by 26, there is a sense that you aren't going to get there ever. Mm. Do you see what I mean? Yeah. And I think that's that's what you see with Marufuji. And to a lesser extent, Morishima in the next match, which we should probably talk about because we've spent like five minutes on this opening tag match. <laughs> <laughs> so the next match, Satoru Osako and Takeshi Morishima beat Burning, Kentaro Shiga and Yoshinobu Kanemura. Yes, that Yoshinobu Kanemura, as in current IWGP tag team champion Yoshinobu Kanemura. 13 minutes and 33 seconds. And this was very good, really. And Shiga and Kanemura were a cracking tag team. They were part of the burning faction, which was um, uh, Kenta Kobashi's faction within All Japan Pro Wrestling. And they, were part of, they were part of Kenta Kobashi's stable. That's not a bad gig, that, is it? <laughs> really? And they they stayed in that stable up until the more, because they all went to Noah together as the stable. And then, because um, this is the thing, these stables actually impacted on real life much more than you think. Like, um, it was considered a really big, brave move for Kawada, who was part of Tenru's revolution stable, to say, no, I'm not leaving. I like it here, and I want to be good here, when he left to go from SWS, or which became war, I guess, really. But, but yeah, but Kawada was having none of it. No, I'm an all-Japan pro wrestler. I want to be triple crown champion. So he stayed put, and it was the right decision to make. But, yeah, so uh, these guys all left with um, uh, Kabashi to go to Noah, and then when Kabashi was fired for Noah 15 years later for no apparent reason, <laughs> <laughs> they all went to all-Japan. They all went back home again um, as conquering heroes. Um, and then eventually burning broke up. But yeah, it took, you know, this faction was together for more or less 20 years across two different promotions, and they left one, came back, and went back to the other one again. Yeah, well, you see that now with with the big factions in Japan. Like, they do, you know, in in New Japan, for instance, you can see that the effect that has across the industry, really, and how kind of united the, the guys in each faction actually are. Yeah, very much so. Um... Which is kind of what makes the the Bullet Club stuff that we've got in New Japan at the minute. I know you haven't called, but that's kind of what makes it intriguing is because you've got mm-hmm. a bunch of people in Bullet Club that don't really fit in Bullet Club. But that's what makes for good stories. Anyway, Asaka Marishima against Burning was really good. Yes. Um, and you kind of get like the the hint of Marishima is going to be a big star, I think. Yeah, tw- 20 years old here, I think. Yeah, you can see, yeah. like you say, those flashes, like his offense is isn't quite as brutal as, as it would become <laughs> when he really hits his prime, but there's definitely flashes of it. And again, same thing with the previous match, Old Japan put in kind of the young, talented prospect in the team with the the older, kind of more veteran. Um, and yeah, it's did what, what you would hope again from a tag match like this, gets off to a really rapid start, settles into a more deliberate kind of back and forth tag pacing, with a really nice closing stretch like Frankensteiner's twisting moonsault presses where I think Kanemaru lands directly on Asako's head, which, uh, ouch. Um, and then again, the oldest guy gets the pin with, with a Michinoku driver. So again, yeah, very kind of similar 
layout to to the previous match, but you know, a, a real showcase for for the young guy and well, the young guys really. Yeah, definitely. And you can tell Morishima. I think Morishima probably was the standout from like I suppose because because he became the biggest star of the four. Mm-hmm. Um, has had a lot of mental health issues since his retirement, and was sadly arrested last year, which will say like. He's not had the greatest pro post wrestling career. Uh, did try and come back and, and was unsuccessful at that. But certainly at this particular time in his life, the world at his feet, he looks like he's going to be a big mm. star. Was his retirement due to injuries? Uh, I think I don't really know. There was an article online. I'm trying to uh, trying to remember where it was, but there was a big article online that talked about. Um, uh, his recent uh, about the issues that he'd had since his retirement mm-hmm. and he retired basically through he was a bit burnt out and he was having suffering some mental health issues and wanted to try and sort himself out and then had about a year or two off and then i think it was about 18 months ago he came back to a noah show and tried to cut a promo and could barely speak I, right. it, was, it was painful to watch actually i saw it and it was he just stuttered and stammered his way through it and kind of just stormed off at the end. Um, right, okay. That, that For whatever reason, that kind of passed me by, I think, at the time. It's one of those things because it's kind of out of sight, out of mind. And yeah. he's, he's got this odd mindset of a senior who still thinks he's a senior in a wrestling company, so he doesn't have to pay for dinner and he can walk out of a restaurant and be rude and get away with it. But he can't because he's just a guy now. Mm. You know, and it's it's... It's kind of sad to see, really. Yeah, uh, oh, it's, yeah, when you think of, like, obviously, I guess, US fans or or Western fans, shall we say, will probably know him best for his Ring of Honor title run and particularly, like, the matches with, like, um, Brian Danielson, Nigel McGuinness. Um, yeah, when you, when you think about... Those were insane. Like, particularly the match with Danielson um, that they had in New York, I think, which is one of the wildest <laughs> matches I've probably ever seen. That's the one where Brian gets like his eye dislocated from its socket or yeah, something ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah it, it's kind of sad really. Like, cause he was, he was just unbelievable as like that hard hitting monster kind of wrestler. Yeah. I, th- I think as, as well, it's one of those situations where like, we praise Baba for all the good things he did, but he was part of this system, which isn't necessarily conductive to allowing people to fully retire. Yes. You know, I think Jumbo Saruta stayed with the company until he passed away a couple of years later. You know, mm-hmm. he had cancer as well. So he never really retired from pro wrestling. He was always involved somewhere. And again, Misawa doesn't really retire. He just dies. Yeah. Uh, well, Mazawa was very much like he felt like he had to carry these companies on his back. So I think he stuck around many, many years longer than he should have done doing that. Yeah. Out of, out of all of the the four pillars of all Japan pro wrestling that we talk about and quite rightly revere, only Kobashi and Teiyu get to retire properly. Yeah. And even Kobashi, it took like his his knees basically exploding for him to, to call it a day. <laughs> and essentially Tayo only left because somebody else took over the company and essentially kind of asked him to leave. They didn't fire him. 
Yeah. But he wouldn't be president of the company anymore, but I think he'd still be there if they'd let him. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Like, yeah. So, it, 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 it becomes a way of life, and I don't think there's anything wrong with that, but I think equally it becomes... It's something that you can't necessarily get rid of either, which isn't a bad thing, I guess. It depends on how you feel about it. And Murashima is probably a casualty of that. Mm. But anyway, we've we've been very very maudlin, but it isn't the happiest of subjects on this card. Let's (laughs) do something much more fun, which was Giant Kamala, Haruki Aigen, and Jun Izumida. They defeated Masaya Inoue, Inoue, Misao Momota, and Rushi Kimura in 14 minutes and three seconds. This was just fun. Mm. It's just fun. It was just just fun. Nothing wrong with this whatsoever. Uh, it was really cool that Haruka Aigen, one of the veterans of Japanese wrestling, came out with body paint like Kamala and Izumuda. Just yeah. to yeah, just yeah, I'm with you, I'm with the lads. <laughs> <laughs> and it was just fun. That was it. It was just a bit of comedy wrestling. Rushi Kimura's theme tunes are banger, by the way. I'd forgotten oh, about Yeah, there are some banging entrance musics on this card as well yeah it was really cool what are your thoughts on this one alex yeah i agree like fun in a different way we obviously had kind of athleticism (laughs) of the first two matches this is this is the big lads the big dads match isn't it um lots of lots of just hitting each other (laughs) basically plus kind of fun character work like you say with with the them all kind of coming out in the paint and this is the Kamala, we should say, as well, which is kind of timely to watch um, one of his matches, given his passing a couple of months back. He was still cracking out the big dive from the top to get the win as well, despite being nearly 50, I think, at the time of this match, which yeah. reminds you how athletic and impressive like James Harris actually was, despite the, the quite racist gimmick, let's be honest, which he's associated with. He was actually a very underrated worker i think yeah i think so as well i think this is a classic case of like that they didn't um they didn't dwell on the racism angle he was just Mm. a guy in all japan pro wrestling me and alex edwards did look at his run with abdullah the butcher in the 1992 world tag league and they were one of the most effective teams in that tournament yeah Profession tag team wrestlers, and they had some big matches, especially with the British Bruisers uh, or the Bulldog. I think it wasn't. There was the Bruisers back then. It was Johnny Smith and Dynamite. Um, so yeah, they they had some cracking matches. Kamala was not a bad wrestler by any stretch of the imagination. He wasn't. He, he won't lose Thez, but he <laughs> knew what to do and knew how to put a good match together, even at this stage in his career, where. You know, 99, he'd just come off a run with WWE. Let's not be, yeah. let's not downsell him here. He was like, well, literally one of the biggest stars in the world, which is insane, really, isn't it, when you think about it? Yeah. But yeah, like you say, it's the whole match, it's like really well laid out to kind of give everyone the chance to shine. It's, it's what, it's the kind of thing we see, say, in New Japan nowadays, like where they, you know, the older guys are in maybe a six man tag. You give, every guy their moment to shine do their famous bits of offense that's what the crowd want to see from a match like this they want to pop for the the big moves basically yeah certainly and that was kind of what you got in the next match as well mm. johnny smith masanubifuchi and taman honda 
they defeated Ghetto. Yes, that Ghetto. <laughs> <laughs> Nakagawa and Yukihira Kanemori in 14 minutes and 41 seconds. Let's, let's just go over who's actually in these matches because we should point that out. So Johnny Smith is Johnny Friggin' Smith, cousin of Davy Boy Smith and the Dynamite Kid, uh, another Goldburn Lancashire lad, uh, who, uh, we had a discussion about this, who was kind of the most underrated of the three, obviously, but probably the most inconsistent of the three. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, but also the nicest of the three, by some yes. distance. <laughs> <laughs> and a much longer career than the other two. Yeah. Uh, well, there you go. Uh, Masanubi Fuchi, another um, protege of the Dynamite Kid. And Taman Honda, who was kind of a bit of an odd wrestler. He was very good, but just a bit odd. Um, mm-hmm. Kind of wore these long tights and stuff, and you kind of expect him to be an amateur wrestler, but he was a bit of a tough brawler. Koji Nakagawa, you will remember from such cards we've discussed as FMW, Murder in a Car Park. Um, <laughs> he was part of the FMW entanglement against the invading wing people. Um, which when he tagged with Tanaka against um, Kanemura and Matsunaga, I think, uh, in a no-rope exploding barbed wire match. He was the Bret Hart impersonator. That him, me and John talked in town. Why is yes. he dressed like Bret Hart? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> As we did so often back then. Um, and obviously, clearly, he'd forgiven the, the guys that invaded FMW in the mid-1990s and joined them in Team No Respect. With Yukihiro Kanemura, that'll be your wing Kanemura, um, and Ghetto, as in Ghetto. Ghetto <laughs> and Ghetto were part of Team No Respect, as was their boss from War, whose name escapes me, and I can't remember now. I'll just look up Team No Respect and see who was their boss. It was, yeah, Koda Fuki, Fuyuki from Fuyuki Gun, which kind of evolved into Team No Respect. Um, FMW was going through some weird bits. At this particular point in time, Atsushi Anita has been long gone and joined New Japan Pro Wrestling. So they were trying to build the company around Hayabusa. It's not a bad draw to build it around. Um, and Team No Respect became this hardcore uh, stable that were anti-hardcore. Because <laughs> <laughs> they didn't want to do deathmatch stuff. Because they were desperately trying to make FMW more palatable to yeah. uh, a mainstream audience so they didn't have to keep blowing each other up. They did occasionally. Uh, but they did things at this particular time, like get the main event of that year's anniversary shown to be refereed by Shawn Michaels. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> I, I think, I'm sure it was 99. It was Mr. Yanisuke versus Hayabusa or H as he was known then, because Mr. Ganesuke had stolen the Hayabusa gimmick and was wrestling as Hayabusa. And Hayabusa was wrestling as H because he'd been unmasked. After after losing a firecracker up the ass match at Currican Hall. Brilliant. (laughs) And there is video footage out there of the late Hayabusa indeed taking a firecracker up the ass. Um, And then moving on to the main event of that year's FMW anniversary show, which was Ganesuke versus, oh, sorry, Hayabusa, but really Mr. Ganesuke versus Hayabusa with Shawn Michaels as guest referee. And Shawn Michaels did wear his ever-so-tight camel-toe yoga shorts for that particular <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. 
also featured Raven and Tommy Dreamer in perhaps the only tag match where they actually worked together properly. (laughs) (laughs) As they defended the ECW tag titles against the... um, WEW Tag Team Champions. But yeah, anyway, that's, that long, that's a long way around to define this match. Because it was all right, really. <laughs> it was, yeah. <laughs> well, we were, you mentioned the, the great entrance music, absolute battle of the great entrance music in this one, with <laughs> Team No Respect coming out to the offspring, um, featuring Gado dancing while looking as angry as humanly possible, <laughs> which was welcome. Also wearing... A flame design shirt, like he's me at a, as a teenager going to a gig. Like it was, it was really old school. Um, and then obviously the lads came out to Danger Zone, like absolute legends. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so so that was that was enjoyable before the match even started. Um, and yeah, it's funny, like the Japanese commentary, because um, obviously I don't speak Japanese. Um, I should, given the amount of Japanese wrestling I watch. But I do enjoy when the English seeps into the commentary so you get lines like Team No Respect, Team No Respect Stomping, Tokyo Dome Booing, which pretty much sums sums the match up nicely, I think, because it was what what you'd expect with Team No Respect showing no respect and very much using a lot of dirty tactics. And then the lads just beat them up and ultimately overcame the cheating to get the win which is yeah what you'd kind of expect from a match like this and obviously as you say fascinating watching Gado here wrestling for all Japan at the end of well yeah at the end of their their glory period really knowing he would then go on to be so responsible for New Japan's resurgence in the last decade where we are now that which is quite interesting I think I, yeah, you can see where Gado and Jado kind of start getting there. We need to learn stuff heads on here. Yes. <laughs> they they are not regulars in All Japan Pro Wrestling for quite some time. They end up working in All Japan, but their next move after FMW, when FMW shuts up shop, is New Japan as a tag team in um, Jushin Liger's faction in the mm-hmm. junior heavyweight division, where they finally become the world-class tag team and take over booking of the junior division and then eventually take over booking of the whole company. Um, but this was the point where Ghetto is, well, he was the one off doing things around the world. He, Ghetto and Ghetto had wrestled in ECW arena this year. Cause they had that talent swap agreement was back yeah. on again. With MW. Yeah. It, it'd only been two years since he'd wrestled at bash at the beach. I think <laughs> it was. Cause it's some really, didn't he wrestle Randy Savage in some ridiculous match? I can't remember. I know he was, I know he did a lot of junior heavyweight for him for WCW, but did a couple of swaps for them. But yeah, it's, it, it sounds 100% feasible for WCW, so <laughs> possibly. Oh, as we speak today, I can't remember who won the uh, World of Stardom Championship today, but she only got a start two years ago because somebody no showed the. Five Star Grand Prix tournament in 2018, and two years later, after just filling in for that show, she's now the champion of the company. So there you go. Great, yeah, that's <laughs> if you grab an opportunity, you never know. Exactly, but yeah, I think the you know this is kind of like the classic AJ AJPW mid card team mm-hmm. against some pretty class opposition. But the big thing is. These are FNW wrestlers on an All Japan show, which four yeah. months 
Baba on the giant Baba would definitely not happen. Now, I know it's a memorial show and people are paying their respects, but that wouldn't have happened under Baba. Yeah. No. And it's starting to show where the cracks are starting to cause problems for all Japan pro wrestling. The issue with King's Pro, we'll talk about this later on the show, but the issue with King's King's Road is if you follow the booking logic of King's Road, then cards can become very predictable very quickly, especially if you have a roster that is enclosed and you do never freshen up and it's always the same guys mm-hmm. because it's a finite it's a finite booking style. It's a zero-sum booking style. Like any other booking style, you can have a shock win and it doesn't really matter in the greater scheme of things. But there's no shock wins in King's Road. Yeah. It has to happen in a certain order. And I think that's the issue here. But Ghetto is watching and learning all of this as he goes along. He is, Ghetto has been in more failed wrestling promotions than any other person. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which, yeah, you're probably right, has turned him into the great booker <laughs> he's become. I mean, look at the bookers. He, he did work for Antonio Noki, and he worked for Baba, and he worked for Grand Hamada, and he worked for great Sasuke and he worked for um, Victor Quinez and he worked for Eric Bischoff and he worked for Paul Heyman. He did not keep his eyes shut all the time. He was in different places. Mm. Yeah. Anyway, let's move on to the next match, which was given four stars by a wrestling observer at the time, which yeah, was, this is, this is where the show really gets cooking. I think absolutely gets cooking. The untouchables, Masahito Kakihara and Yoshihiro Ogawa along with Manuki Mossman, went to a time limit draw with Hayabusa, the great Sasuke, and Tiger Mask. Three, well, one guy from FMW, two guys from Michinoku Pro. Tiger Mask is the current Tiger Mask, the one you see in New Japan Pro Wrestling these days. Great Which Sasuke. is quite crazy to think when you think of all the incarnations the character's gone through, that it's still yeah. the same one from over two decades ago. Yeah, great Sasuke... Um, was the IWGP junior heavyweight champion at the time. So he was representing New Japan Pro Wrestling, whether New Japan Pro Wrestling likes that or not. <laughs> and I don't think Japan Pro Wrestling would be bothered, to be honest. And Hayabusa, you forget how good Hayabusa was. Yeah. There's a, strong, there's a strong case to be said that Hayabusa was perhaps the greatest aerial heavyweight I've ever seen. He was, the, to me, the standout in this match, which says quite a bit, <laughs> to be honest. I, I do think that when we listen back to the 60-some hours of the Beginner's Guide of Professional Wrestling <laughs> show, it is essentially the story of Hayabusa. Because the early shows, we did talk an awful lot about the young Hayabusa paying his dues on FMW shows and opening card matches against no opposition. Mm. He becomes this absolute stellar attraction and his ability to have great matches with absolutely anyone. And I think that's that's the really the interesting thing for me out of this matchup. Mm, definitely. Yeah. Um, and, you know, Kakahara, Gawa and Osman are no bad either, are they? They're no, well, <laughs> what's interesting <laughs> with with Mossman because he didn't, Mazawa basically postpone his kind of baby face push following Barber's death, which... I think was a factor in why he Mossman was one of the few guys who stuck around, didn't, you know, make the jump when we yeah. when we talk about the Exodus in two thousand, he stuck around to try and help build rebuild old Japan. Um but yeah, I don't know. I don't know what the, the kind of 
thinking behind that was, whether Mizawa just wasn't a fan or... I, I think, I mean, there was, there's the, the internal um, politics of All Japan Pro Wrestling in 1999 is worth a book in itself. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I feel like if we if we do end up doing a podcast covering the the Exodus in full, like there's so many factors in it. Well, to give you an idea, last year it was the 20th anniversary of the birth of Noah, mm-hmm. and all of the Kings Road companies buried the hatchet, and they had brand cards together and started booking each other's talent. And part of that uh, reconciliation was a debate between. Kawada and Marufuji and Kawada pointed out I've never spoken to you before because you were in you were in Kabashi's faction so why would I speak to you that's wild that's really wild yeah it's like you were you were one of Kabashi's guys I I had no reason to ever speak to you and that that kind of blows your mind like one of the yeah like it was, Kawada wasn't being rude. He wasn't. He said, "It's nice to meet you, but I've never actually spoken to you because you were always junior, so I had no need to speak to you. And you were one of Kabashi's guys, so why would I ever have to speak to you?" Mm. <laughs> it's just like it's insane, isn't it? Yeah. Like, <laughs> but it's just uh, you know there were, it's, there were and I think he explained. He said there was guys that went to to SWS that I'd never spoke to because I was a junior when they started, when they left. So why would they ever speak to me? And it's it's just normal. It's just the way it is. Yeah, that is just the way it operates. (laughs) That's just the way it operates. And because they'd left, they were persona non grata. All Japan guys were not allowed to speak to Noah guys. Yeah. And that was it. That was that was that until literally this reconciliation a couple of years ago. Pardon me. By the way, when we talk about All Japan Pro Wrestling, we have to talk about the four exoduses of all Japan pro wrestling. <laughs> this is exodus number three, by the way, we're talking about the big exodus. Yeah. The most famous one. <laughs> <laughs> much like Roman crusade. Oh, sorry. Much like, um, much like Christian crusades in the dark ages. The third one was the crazy one. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, uh, there was, there would be yet another one to come in another 15 years time. It's around about every 15 years or so. Anyway. <laughs> you get a mass exodus every 15 mass years. Exodus, yeah, so we'll do another one in another 10 years' time, but I don't think we'll understand that. Uh, so, yeah, but that match is really probably the best match on the card up until this point. And the next one's a banger as well. Takoki Amori and Yoshiro. Could, could I chip in on the match itself? Because we got, oh, we, got kind of a, we got kind of sidetracked there, didn't we? I apologise. Go for it. Um, yeah, because I think it's def- if people are going to go and check out some matches from this card, then this is definitely, like like you say, maybe the best match on the card, although I do love the main event as well. Um, but yeah, it's it's fast-paced, it's innovative, it's, it's everything you want from a six-man junior heavyweight match of this era. And I think it shows the roots of a lot of the modern wrestling style we see today. Um, goes half an hour never feels that long they build it deliberately to like this unbelievable final 10 minutes with all these big spots back and forth moments false finishes um and like to its strength like you're generally genuinely guessing who's gonna win the whole time which leaves you then even more shocked that (laughs) it does end with that time limit draw because it doesn't ever feel like they're working towards that um 
and yeah, like some of the spots down the the closing stretch are are incredible. Like Sasuke's obviously pulling out the Sasuke special, loads of dives, Tiger Mask flipping out of a German suplex and hitting one of his own, Ogawa hitting loads of suplexes. Um, but yeah, Hayabusa, like I say, was was the standout because the stuff he was pulling off, like it, he hits a 450, which is beautiful, and that's you think that's the finish and then the pin gets gets broken up then he hits the tiger driver and ogawa kicks out it's it's really yeah it's just really really entertaining this match definitely worth um worth checking out if people are just going to check out a couple of the matches from this show this is definitely definitely one to to dig out to be honest with you i think every match from this one onwards Though I'd put in a mention for the match before the Team No Respect match because that's an important historical one. But all of these matches, and also onwards... just to see Gado dancing, obviously. Yes. <laughs> okay, so we will go on to the next match, which was. Uh... Oh, sorry, I'm I'm doing this thing where can I jump in and say this is where they have the actual tribute to Baba. Yes, good point. I did mean to talk about that. Thank you for reminding me. I was wondering when I was going to fit it in, but less less the things slow down. Hmm. Uh, there was uh, an announcement of a match which wasn't really a match because Big Bang Vader and Stan Hansen led out Bruno Sammartino, Gene Kaninsky and the Destroyer and on the big screen which we didn't see because presumably they didn't have the rights for it <laughs> Oh yeah, yeah, that's true actually <laughs> They showed footage of a, of a match they had, they announced it as a wrestling match which was really cool they put Baba's boot, Matoko Baba, Baba's uh, widow, put the boots of Baba in the ring. And they had the announced match by a film from the 1970s, which this was is, a really thing to do, I thought. Yeah, this is a thing that has definitely been incorporated quite a bit since. Because if you remember, um, Bull Nakano's retirement ceremony was a little bit like this, where they showed kind of the footage of the matches. And then it was like in the ring, they were kind of dressed up, <laughs> you know. From, yeah. from those eras of her like famous matches so i think that's definitely become a thing now yeah definitely it's it it's yeah it was really interesting the way they went about it and it was a nice touching tribute and who'd have thought gene kaninsky could be so nice yeah yeah <laughs> He's like, he's by far the most, there's like Bruno Sammartino, known for his promoters, the great communicator. He kind of like mumbles something about how Shoei Baba was a great man and just kind of blunders off. But Gene Kaninsky gives this clear and lucid and clearly upset that he's lost his friend yeah. speech. And, and much the same for the Destroyer did speak fluent Japanese and actually had the freedom of Japan. So, you know, he was a Japanese citizen mm-hmm. uh, for his work that he did in the 1970s. Whereas, you know... Kaninsky was just like, yeah, I'm not, I should, he shouldn't really, like, you know, rate people's memorial speeches. That's a bit grim. But <laughs> Samatino, I guess Samatino was just upset because Samatino mm. and Baba were very close. Samatino bought Baba his car. You know, he bought him a Cadillac. Um, Samatino always classed Giant Baba as a class act. He was the best promoter he ever worked for. He said that often, usually with Invincement Mancini's earshot. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, because he and he did, did, they've told this story before, but Samatino was waiting outside the hotel one day to be picked up for a card. I think it was Joe, he was waiting with Joe Aguchi, and this tiny car pulls up, and then Baba gets into this car, and the driver kind of 
crams himself in and he one drives off and he says, why don't they get him a bigger car? And he's like, mm-hmm. we don't make big cars here. It's Japan. Everybody's five foot ten. You know, they're all tall. The average height of Japanese now is a lot taller, but the average height back then was relatively short. And obviously they build design cars for the majority of people. You don't need to be massive. And when when um, Bruno got home, he shipped his Cadillac to Tokyo for Baba. When he when he was buying a new Cadillac, he shipped his old one to Baba. The next time he went back to Japan, he was being chauffeur-driven in his Cadillac, smoking a cigar in the back seat, like a proper wrestling promoter. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I think I think Samatino was just genuinely upset, but Kiki Kaninsky was very lucid and very clear in his appreciation of Baba's work, and so was the Destroyer. You couldn't really tell what the Destroyer was saying because, he, like I said, he spoke in Japanese, not English. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I should expect a fluent Japanese speaker to speak. But, yeah, it was uh, it was interesting to watch that memorial. Yeah, it was a, a fitting tribute, and then, obviously, um, Baba's wife, Matoko, puts his boots in the middle of the ring for the ten-bell salute, which is also, you know, very classic for for these kind of things um and yeah it's it's just interesting when we obviously then we do delve into the mass exodus because of like i guess matoko's role in that or the clashes between mizawa and matoko that kind of led to that yeah it's it's a heavy set of politics to get into and yes (laughs) (laughs) um but we will get there. Undoubtedly, we will get there. Um, but for now, <laughs> we will stick with the wrestling. Okay, so we will get on to this next match. I will, which... I will actually allow you to talk about this match now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Akira Teyu, Stan Hansen and Steve Williams. We're a right banger. We're Gary Albright and Team No Fear. Takoko Omori and Yoshihiro Takiyama in 16 minutes and 10 seconds. Of six really big blokes knocking seven bells of shit out of one another. <laughs> and that's dad, dad. <laughs> <laughs> and, But this this kind of like puts on one side you've got Teyu, Hansen and Williams all Japan through and through. Mm-hmm. All of them. And then on the other side you've got Amori who's an all Japan guy but Gary Albright and Takayama both came from UWFI. They were shoot stylists, and it was kind of a nod to the way that Baba adapted that shoot style approach. We've talked a lot on the Beginner's Guide about shoot style promotions like UWFI, UWF, PWFG, Pancras. We ended up too much Pancras, but we should do really. Um, but those companies had a big effect on what Baba was doing with King's Road because up until then, if you, me and John did the. Um, JWA World League from 1958, I think. And the amount of squib finishes there is in that is ridiculous. Hmm. Like Ricky Dozan loses the semi final by disqualification, but then gets through to the final because he beat the other guy that up bad that badly whilst getting disqualified. He can't continue. <laughs> it's like the most contrived thing you've ever seen. <laughs> And that slowly drifts away, but even then you get a lot of time limit draws and count-out victories in the 70s and 80s. But Baba understood what made UWFI very much definitive was there was always going to be a clean finish. It was going to be a knockout or submission, but there was no squib finishes. And and that kind of really influenced what King's Road would become. That was really important to what King's Road style Mm -hmm. storytelling was about because 
without a clean finish, King's Road makes no sense. Yeah. Uh, and it's what the fans were coming to see. That's what they were paying to see. And there was a big influence from UWFI. And when UWFI closed, it's interesting, the guys he handpicked, Takiyama and Gary Albright, both guys who could adapt to a pro style. They were always going to be strong mid-card draws and threats to the main championship, though he'd never let them have it. Mm. Can't have outsiders winning the championship. Good Lord, no. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, so for me, that makes interesting reading as far as like the history of all Japan and its influences from outside companies. What's your thoughts on this one, Alex? Yeah, well, yeah, Takiyama's an interesting one, probably maybe best known to some people for his, his MMA stuff, um, some kind of famous fights he's been involved in. But yeah, it's interesting to see him as a slightly younger version um, without the trademark bleach blonde hair. Um, but yeah, like Teo, Stan Hansen, Steve Williams is quite the team, isn't it? Um, does... <laughs> Like you say, very much does what it says on the tin. It's just big lads beating the crap out of one another, really. It's the the slap exchange early on between Takiyama and, and Steve Williams kind of sums it up, where they slap each other for a bit, then Williams just punches him <laughs> to knock him down. That, that kind of sums up what this match is. Um, yeah, the maybe i think my favorite moment was when i think it's amori hits the axe bomber on tail and the crowd goes nuts because he's been getting <laughs> beaten up for about five minutes that was great um stan hansen obviously gets the win when he decapitates <laughs> amori with a, la- a lariat but yeah it was it was it was a big dad's beating each other up it was it was a lot of fun and yeah the fact that those three kind of yeah all japan legends you know, stalwarts were were putting this team together. Obviously, getting on a bit by this point, but you know, it's important. It was important to have these guys on the card in a, on a card like this. Yeah, I think as well. You look how much Teo aged. The last time we saw Teo, as we've been looking at these cards, the last time we saw talk, talked about Teo was in the World Tag League, oh, strongest determination tag league in nineteen ninety two. Eight years previously. When he was a fresh-faced 22-year-old, he's 30 in this match and looks about 43. Is he only 30? God, right, okay. (laughs) I'm trying to figure out how old he would have been then. Let me just look at the German marathon. I think I forget how young he was in the early 90s when, you know, he was part of that, those four being pushed because they were obviously such kind of icons of that era you forget how young Teo actually was at that time he's 59 now so Teo would have been 40 you'd have been 38 yeah wow but it was old 38 yeah yeah I I did think because I think (laughs) I'm assuming like I think Hanson was was pushing up to 50 at this point so he didn't he didn't look out of place next to him which is a perhaps a tad concerning yeah, yeah, it's it's it, <laughs> yeah, and as well, I mean, like Gary Albright is no longer with us um, out of this out of this particular crew. Neither is Steve Williams, mm-hmm. you know. Um, though they both had their lives cut short by other things, mm-hmm. um, and of course, Yoshihiro Takayama is currently still in hospital. Though he's started getting weight training done, he's starting to get movement in his upper body, and he's starting to lose some weights. So, from what I heard. Both me and John Dinsdale had proud moments when we got to give to the Takayama Fund when Sendai Girls wrestled in, in Manchester. Um, and 
it the just the gratefulness of the people where I put some money into the pot and the guys looked at me and nodded to me and bowed to me and it was like oh this this you can tell the love for Takayama there is mm. in the Japanese wrestling industry um because it's really important and I thought it was a it's an important thing to do if you want to give to the Takayama fund by the way um Minoru Suzuki runs it the whole thing so you can usually find stuff for because he's Takayama one of Takayama's best friends from their days back in um UWFI. Um, so if you want to go and have uh, have a look at Minoru Suzuki stuff, I think it'll be on the Power Driver website. Should be able to give there. Uh, please do because he's a really important guy. And like we said, MMA wisely considered to be the greatest MMA fight of all time was Don Fry versus Yoshihiro Takayama, when neither of them could get ahead. So they just battered each other for half an hour. Yeah, that's that's the one. Like I think a lot of people. Um, will have probably seen that even if they've just seen the highlights of it on YouTube because it's so it's so infamous for just how kind of ridiculous it is that the way they just batter each other. Yeah, yeah, because they just don't know any speed, do they? Other than straightforward. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that's the thing. It's like the ultimate matchup in that sense. Speaking of knowing no speed other than straightforward, Toshiaki Kawada defeats Hiroase in 20 minutes and 55 seconds of <laughs> sheer bloody murder. <laughs> Is this the only singles match these guys ever had, by the way? Because I was... Surprise me, to be honest. I was I was looking online, but it on, this was the only match that seemed to come up, which is... Yeah, if, that's, if this is the only singles match these two ever had, that is wild. Yeah, I mean, Hase, for for those of you who don't know, um, wow, I've just, just looked at this, and apparently Heiro Hase was once in a tag team called the Viet Cong Express. He was, yeah. <laughs> That's hilariously bad. Um, <laughs> yeah, sorry, I didn't realise that. That was when he was in Stampede. Oh, oh Stu, <laughs> of course, known so much for his open mind. Anyway, um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> Viet Cong Express... Hase um, was obviously a New Japan regular, former Olympic uh, wrestler as well, uh, highly regarded, well put together, professional wrestler, good quality, uh, except he kind of grew up in New Japan at the wrong time and retired from wrestling to run for office and was successful. And when he got out of parliament, he decided to go back to wrestling, but not for New Japan pro wrestling because he realized he was never going to win a world championship in New Japan because they just had too many good guys. So he went to all Japan instead, where he wasn't going to win a championship either, because he was an outsider, so they never let him do that. <laughs> <laughs> so as a result of that, he ended up being an exceptionally good wrestler to put in good matches with, and Kawada versus Hase is a big drawing match, and that's what this was, and it acted like a big main event-style match. Mm. And it was well worth the price of admission, alone, I think. What's your thoughts on this one, Alex? Yeah, well, by the way, is Hase still in government is he the current minister for education and sport or the, the former he's a former education minister he's a spokesperson for the education department now there you go but yeah he, the thought that yeah someone so high up in japanese politics can can be seen here dropping toshiaki kawada on his head <laughs> repeatedly and <laughs> beating him in strike battles which for me should be on his page on the government website in my opinion <laughs> because that's a real claim to fame that one <laughs> um, but 
but yeah like, like you say it's it's again this is kind of what you sign up for when you see these two uh facing each other you know hard hitting as hell while telling a great story Kawada obviously one of the all-time greats I think we've we've covered him plenty of times over <laughs> over these history podcasts um I think it's interesting while everyone obviously talks about how he had this extremely stiff, realistic style. It also needs to be recognised that what set guys like him, Mizawa, Kobashi apart is their selling and their storytelling. Because you see that early on when Kawada gets hit with a backdrop driver, immediately gets tries to get back up, but his legs buckle underneath him and he falls back down. Um, it's the kind of stuff um, Tomohiro Ishii does now, um, for a modern reference, and it's this is probably where he learned it from, to be honest, because it's it's how you can make yourself look like a badass, but while still selling and making the other guy look great, because essentially you're you're the toughest guy in the room, but your body's kind of betraying how hurt you actually were, you actually are, even when yeah. you're trying to tough it out. Um, but yeah, just underrated part of kind of strong style and king's road wrestling i think sometimes that um but yeah the the match like delivers like you say everything you'd you'd kind of want from a match between these two back and forth battering (laughs) each other and then (laughs) a bit of technical work in the middle nice closing stretch um kawada wins with a brutal brain buster um but yeah my my one thing would be I feel like they could have maybe gone up a gear if they wanted to. It never quite entered into the classic territory. I don't know if I'm being unfair, but it felt like there was that incredible, intense opening few minutes, and then they slowed it down. It never quite hit the same heights again. But if it's the case that this is the only match they ever had, you know, maybe they were saving more in the tank for for a, a return match that just never happened for whatever reason. Yeah, three and a quarter stars from the Wrestling Observer. I think I it was that myself. The cage match guys gave it seven point one two, which I think is probably fairer. Mm. Yeah. Um, oh, it's yeah. great. I'm just, um, you know, I'm like, it, it, it could have yeah, been even better potentially. It felt like they were building up to something else that never happened. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I agree with you on that. I think so. Next was, well, again, speaking of big blokes hitting each other, really, yeah, there was a lot of that. <laughs> Burning, Yonakiyama, who brilliantly, we've got to talk about this. Yonakiyama was installed in the Wrestling Observer Newsletter Hall of Fame this week. Congratulations, <laughs> Yonakiyama. Someone had to explain to him that there was a Wrestling Observer Newsletter Hall of Fame, and it was a great honour. And he was like, oh. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> <I love it. laughs> oh, there's Kenny Omega going, I'm such an honor and, and, and my life's work. And, and Yonakiyama was like, I, I got an award. <laughs> <laughs> That's literally the tweet. I, I won what now? <laughs> it, it very much sums up those two personalities, <laughs> doesn't it, really? Yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> Yeah, and, you know, it's just like, before everyone gets up their own ass about how much the Wrestling Observer means to people around the world, Yonakiyama has given you some perspective. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, Dave, but there you are. Anyway, burning Yonakiyama and Kenta Kibashi, along with Hikushi, or Shenzei Shinzaki, 
uh, current uh, yoga instructor and president of uh, Sendai Girls Professional Wrestling. He's, he follows me on Twitter, you know. His, his uh, fitness account does, yeah. He's a personal trainer and yoga expert. I did not know he was... Is he like the, the DDP of Japan? I assume so. Yeah. I assume that's what he's going for. Now, yeah, I didn't know, I didn't know about his yoga stuff. That's, that's interesting. There you go. And they wrestle the Road Warriors, Animal Hawk, and, of course, Animal's brother, Johnny Ace, John Laurinaitis. Which I completely forgot about. So I'm like, why are they tagging with him? Oh. <laughs> by, by the way, if anyone watching this only remembers John Laurinaitis from his on-screen WWE role and sees his intensity in this match, it's going to be quite a shock, <laughs> I think. Yeah, I mean, the, the facial expressions are still there, but instead of he actually looks like he means it rather yeah. than just looking a bit grumpy. Exactly, yeah. It's But when you think about how kind of... Uh, Un- uncharismatic he appeared when he was on screen in WWE and you compare it to this it's like it's like night and day Steve Williams spent a lot of time with him apparently like when um, Gordy left all Japan for obvious health reasons he needed a tag partner and they put him mm-hmm. with Johnny Ace and Steve basically taught him how to be a heel he was like he said, I can't have you smiling every five minutes He's yeah. doing <laughs> really <laughs> Just, good team them as well like really yeah. entertaining yeah, and so Johnny learned how to be a heel um, from Steve Williams. And then, obviously, Steve Williams turned face, and Johnny kind of moved away from that. Mm. And it was the obvious thing to do is to stick him with the Road Warriors. And you forget things like he invented the Ace Crusher. He essentially is responsible for the for Stone Cold Steve Austin's career. Yeah. <laughs> don't know <laughs> if we can go that far, but... <laughs> a large part of it, if the stunner hadn't happened... Would Stone Cold have been over as that? You know, the million dollar dream finishing hold was not as Kazuchika Okada is proving. It's really difficult to go over. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, but, you know, I don't think he would, Steve would have been the, the guy to have got things done without it. I wouldn't say responsible for his career. That's harsh. But it is certainly, he's certainly put a long way of putting a lot of people further forward. He was already booking and road agent for All Japan Pro Wrestling at this particular time. Uh, he was winding up his career and moving on to other things. He was in an executive position for All Japan. Um, he was Matoki Baba's favorite wrestler. And that has been the, the oh, knock on yeah. it that, that Joe Cornet has um, <laughs> put in his way ever since that particular moment. He said he's always, always the nice, polite young man that the female promoters can't get enough of. Um, Jim Cornette not letting go of something that that doesn't sound like him. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, but I, well, Cornette's knock on him was he always got given the job of finishes. He said because he worked in all Japan, so therefore he's got to be great at finishes. And I do agree with Jim on this. Finishes only work in context. Mm. You cannot take a King's Road finish and stick it in WWE and expect it to work. It has to be contextually correct. Yeah. And I, I ain't being funny, but John Cena can't wrestle like this hour Miss Hour. So, <laughs> Spoiler with alert. Best, <laughs> with the best wheel it will in the world, he isn't Akira Teu. So, um, yeah, I think that would, I, I don't disagree with him. I, I think by the way, just to chip in, I'll give Cena a bit of love on the fact that he did do those kind of finishes a couple of times and they did, it did work. To be fair to him, like in his like series with AJ Styles, for instance, that that kind of thing did work, but only occasionally, shall we say? 
again, and because you have context there, and AJ Styles is essentially a King's Road style wrestler. Exactly. Because he, yeah. He grew up in Ring of Honor and Impact Wrestling and New Japan Pro Wrestling, where King's Road is the predominant style. So it makes sense to have a King's Road style finish with a guy who was essentially a King's Road style wrestler. Yeah. Yeah, and that's kind of Jimbo's point, really. I mean, I mean, come on, that's awful. Don't get me wrong. But <laughs> <laughs> even a stopped clock is right twice a day. So <laughs> yes, this is it. Yeah. Anyway, where was we? Oh yeah, Johnny Ace and Road Warriors. Versus- <laughs> this was really good. Uh, Akushi's int- introduction by himself was awesome with his yeah. WWE, full WWE introduction, and Yunakiyama and Kenta Kibashi are just awesome because it's Yunakiyama and Kenta Kibashi. Road Warriors are kind of less awesome because of the end of their productive run, and Johnny is doing a lot of the heavy lifting here for the two of them. Oh, but yeah, it, definitely. It does what it says on the tin, and it is a fun Road Warriors style match. What's your thoughts on this one, Alex? Yeah, ex- exactly that. It's got the got the big names in. Listen, we all know how much I love Kenta Kobashi, so I'll try not to say it too many times <laughs> here, but he is the best, isn't he? Uh, even, um, yeah, like... I thought this was really good. It's you know, it's it's probably not gonna be one where you remember that much, but it's a fun six man. Everyone gets their stuff in, you know. Johnny Aceley say, you know, showing that personality, like kicking the guys before the match has even started. And, you know, you get fun stuff like Kobashi and Animal doing a test of strength, Kobashi hitting delayed suplexes on the big guys, Hakushi gets to do his famous rope walking spot. Um, Hakushi avoiding the doomsday device only to get hit with it moments later as well was very well done Um, and we get the Kobashi moonsault here as well which is a thing of beauty does make me cringe knowing that his knees basically exploded when he hit it later in his career basically that's why he had to retire but taken out of that you know if we don't think about that it is one of the all-time great moonsaults so you know seeing him seeing him hit it here was was pretty great and yeah, in that sort of the context of where things were going, you know, we're going to talk about the main event in a second, but Kobashi plays a big role in where where all Japan goes, and then in, you know, the the belt having to be vacated, and then how he becomes really the the pillar, him and him and Mazawa, the pillars of of progress and Noah after that. Yeah. Um... It's uh, well, we should talk about the main event before we get to that, really. But yes. certainly, one thing I didn't notice about Masawa, he had tiny hands. I uh, can't say I've ever noticed that. <laughs> just, just you look at the way his arms taper down to these hands, and like if he was a boxer, he would never be more than a light heavyweight because if you've got small hands, you can't be a like a, a big handed boxer. But mm-hmm. it enables him, they called him the perfect wrestler. Because he could have excited fast flowing matches with junior heavyweights, and he could have big stand up brawls with heavyweights. That's why he was called Mr. Perfect. You know, he was he was so good at that. And Akiyama in this is so good. Akiyama's the best tag wrestler I've ever seen. Certainly. You know, him and I would say Arn Anderson are the two best tag team wrestlers I've ever seen. They could have a tag team with anyone and make it look amazing. Um, so he's ideal for this particular match. Yeah, and I'm just thinking, like, but yeah, like some of the all-time great kind of old Japan Noah tag matches, Akiyama is is in the majority of them. So yeah, I, I think I did a piece article wrestle talk once, and just kind of comparing Akiyama, Carl Anderson, and Arn Anderson, 
as like the enforcers, like the guys you want in a tag team because they're the absolute glue guys that really make a tag team work. And I can't think of any individual tag team wrestlers who are better than them. Mm. I really don't. I, ever in history of wrestling, I don't think of anyone that could make a tag team click the way those three do. So what you say is we needed an Akiyama, Arn Anderson tag team. That would have been absolutely amazing. The perfect tag team. That's your perfect tag team. If you're going to handpick out of all of the history, the best tag two tag team wrestlers ever, Yonakiyama and Arn Anderson. Yonakiyama is still doing it now for DDT. John Dinsdale. Yeah, yeah. Some of the best matches of the last 12 months are Yonakiyama versus anyone. Or in a tag team <laughs> versus anyone. So I don't watch DDT. John's a big fan, but he keeps raving about Akiyama. And Akiyama is, how old is Akiyama now? And he's another one. You see, he's 51 and can't retire because he's yeah. got to look after All Japan Pro Wrestling. He's moved away from All Japan, which I think is a good thing, uh, going to DDT. But he's still kind of like, he's, he's no longer the, the day-to-day boss of All Japan. But he's still got shares in the company, I'm pretty sure. So, yeah. Well, there you go. It was a good match. But let's move on to the main event before we talk about the four, the third exodus. Masahiro Misawa defeats Vader in 18 minutes and seven seconds. Could you really have any other ending to this card? <laughs> <laughs> 65,000 people having a riot on the way home. Yeah. <laughs> um, now, when uh, Baba passed away, the house rules of all Japan Pro Wrestling was everything was done within the house. If you hired somebody in they that were as a gauge in, they could have the run of the table, they could get as far as they needed to go. If it was somebody from another Japanese company, they probably wouldn't get beyond the mid-card or the the lower singles or tag team belts. Um and that kind of like stymied, like we said with Hase, it kind of stymied what he could possibly do. But with Vader coming out of the WWE in the, I guess it'd be 98, he was let go from WWE. And it had, he was still a massive name because obviously from the early 90s, he was made in Japan. Big Van Vader was literally a new Japan invention. Yeah. And we talked about the, the birth of Vader before. And he'd had some big profile matches, that really weird match with Ken Shamrock on the FMW anniversary show the year before in a cage under UWFI rules. Anywho, um, (laughs) what? (laughs) Uh, And then, so he'd had big net. He was still a big name in Japan. So what do you do with him? And all Japan pointed him straight at the top. Mm. And he would beat. I think he beat Teo. He must have beat Teo for the uh, for the for the championship in uh, earlier in the year. And he was kind of a transitional champion, but that was probably the best you could get out of Vader at this point. I think. You know, he was um, he was a guy that was kind of running out of his steam as uh, a productive main event wrestler. He was still great, but there was a little bit of zing off his fastball. He on slightly too much weight, I think. You know, mm. the, his final promo in WWE is just, I'm a big old fat piece of shit. And I don't think that was far away about where he bent for himself. But oh, he cl- yeah, yeah. He clearly went to All Japan to really try and fulfill the dream once again and he tried really hard and this match is a testament to that what's your thoughts on this match alex yeah well i just was quickly googling while you were talking so he won vader won the vacant belt apparently uh, yes right. when kawada had to had to vacate it due to injury 
in the match where he won it, which is very Kawada. Um, but yeah, so Vader, Vader won, won the vacant belt. And yeah, it's, yeah, like his last great run, really. Like you say, he was past his best by this point. But if you put him in there with guys like Mizawa here and then Kobashi later on, they're going to be able to work to his strengths and produce these great matches with him. You know, this might be the best match Vader had in all Japan, to be honest, because I thought this was this was fantastic. Like this, like I loved the the junior heavyweight match. I think objectively, the junior heavyweight match is the best match on the card. But I probably enjoyed this one the most. Um, obviously, it helps when you're working with Mitsuharu Mizawa. He's, as we say, maybe the best wrestler <laughs> of all time. You know, he's certainly in the top five. Um, and they worked that, you know, beloved underdog baby face, chopping down the massive monster heel style match to perfection, really. You know, Vader dominates the first 10 minutes, like absolutely decimates Mizawa for the first 10 minutes. He's just tossing him around, clubbing the, the crap out of him, basically. <laughs> and then slowly but surely, Mizawa starts to fight back, cut him down. You know, Vader nearly wins the match early on in record time, which was a great tease. And then obviously the longer it goes on, the more it starts to favour Mizawa. And, you know, great, just great storytelling in terms of like the battle over the powerball on the floor is great. Like really mm-hmm. simple, but really dramatic. And then obviously the fact that Vader actually hits it is, is brutal. Then he hits a big splash off the apron he hits a bunch more big moves in the ring and then Mizawa kicks out. And that's when the tide starts to turn. The fans are going nuts because Mizawa, like the the level he was beloved in, in Japan is is incredible, really. And you can you can hear that like when he dumps Vader out the ring and then hits the diving forearm pretty much bang on the 10 minute mark. I think the time call comes the crowd are losing their minds. And especially when he hits um, he hits a German suplex on Vader and it's like the roof's going to come off the place. Um, and like whenever, you know, Vader kind of fights back, hits some Germans of his own, you can hear the despair in the, in the, <laughs> in the audience. Like they're fully into it. Like you say, they could not have ended this show with Mazawa not, not, not winning. Um, and yeah, like, it's just great that the closing stretch, like Mazawa obviously gets thrown on his head, which again, slightly uncomfortable to watch in hindsight, but you know, it's the classic Kings road style. You know, Mazawa has to use his fighting spirit to keep surviving. Then he, you know, they build and build to him hitting the big moves has to survive um, a Vader tiger driver as well, which was a really nice touch. And then, you know, Mizawa keeps going until he can start hitting his big offense. He starts battering Vader with the elbows, rains them down, and then hits the big running one for the win. Um, yeah, I, like the crowd, loved it. I thought it was really smartly worked, really engaging, really exciting. Clocked in at about 20 minutes, which is the perfect kind of length because it allowed vader to look like the dominant monster for 10 minutes then they had 10 minutes of mazawa's fight back for that great closing stretch it didn't need to be half an hour 40 minutes is something we sometimes complain about with with japan nowadays is they have long matches occasionally for the sake of them being long sometimes (laughs) 20 
Yeah, not not always. You know, I'm not digging it, <laughs> digging at New Japan Maybe completely. It's like me and Chrissy, who doesn't watch Japanese wrestling, she watches yeah. Impact, Ring of Honor, AEW, WWE, and we watched the MSG show not yes. long ago. And uh, Jay White versus Okada is the the, the main event, and yes. she was like, "You're kidding me! This match is 40 minutes in, and we're not done yet." And I'm like, "No." <laughs> just getting started <laughs> does not need to be 45 minutes long and I was like yeah. yes it does <laughs> I just want to watch something else but it's like midnight now I don't well, I just... <laughs> it depends on the fat. match yeah. <laughs> it depends on the match like that's it if, it, I, if it's so Carter and Tanahashi they can go for two hours as far as I'm concerned <laughs> but you know Okada and Omega can go for an hour or longer it doesn't feel that long um but yeah for something like this 20 minutes is spot on because you can tell the kind of brutal <laughs> story that you need to tell the big win for Mizawa and it's just the perfect length basically and yeah I, I thought this was a, a fantastic way to close out the show and fitting like you say that Mizawa had to be the guy to win the belt in the main event not just because of how the crowd would have rioted if he didn't, but because you know he was Baba's right hand man, basically it was it was perfect. Um, and yeah, that then from there, like I think Vader won the title back later that year, drops it to Kabashi, and then that kind of leads into everything, <laughs> everything beyond <laughs> that. Basically, one of the biggest shakeups to the Japanese wrestling scene ever. After that, arguably the biggest. I think so, so, yeah. Yeah, we're going to foreshadow what happens next. We're not going to talk about the exodus per se, but we should talk about the political power plays of 1999. So Mitako Baba is the boss of all Japan Pro Wrestling at this point. She partners a company with Nippon TV. Uh, that's really important. And she has in place Matsuhiro Masawa, who is told that you can be the boss so long as you follow the way of Giant Baba and that we will not stray from the path of Baba. I think those were the exact words she used. The mm-hmm. idea being that she wanted to keep the traditional mm-hmm. way the company was booked. She wanted to keep it as a close shop. She wanted to keep it as um, a professional wrestling company that was kind of on a small scale, even though the actual size of the company was huge. But she wanted to keep that ambition within the four walls of all Japan Pro Wrestling and keep with the four pillars until the four pillars were no more. But the thing is, you look at all Japan for wrestling at the time, the major gauging talents were Steve Williams and Stan Hansen, but Stan Hansen had really played himself out as a main eventer three or four years before. His runs in the Carnival Champ- Championship, Carnival and World Determ- Strongest Determination Tag Leagues were always good, but they were kind of like the veteran gearing by rather than the dominant force which he had been in the past and he was fine with that he was Stan friggin Hansen he wasn't going to lose anything by that Steve Williams again lost a lot of juice when Terry Gordy left the company but also was reaching the end and would be gone before the end of the year and off to WWE for literally the end of his career not long Mm -hmm. after this Um, and they had Vader as we just said again at the end of his career and like we said, King's Road Wrestling is a zero-sum game. Somebody has to win and somebody has to lose. And the predictability of 
new stars being made is really hard because you then have to diminish the stars you already have just within the booking style. Yeah. And that's, I think that's something that is a lesson that still hasn't been learned because I think it's partly what New Japan are going through at the moment of they're trying to build new stars because they can't rely on Okada and Tanahashi and NATO forever. Certainly can't rely on Tanahashi and NATO because mm. um, they're held together with sticky tape and desperation. Yeah. So, yeah. so they have to build. That's why Jay White gets that push. That's why Evil has got the push he's got. Some would argue that Evil's push is undeserving. I don't think it is, but it's not as watchable as making him a face uh, main eventer. But they've got to do something. Yeah, and that's, that's it. At least, at least they're trying, you know, to create yeah. new stars. And that's what Mr. Masahiro Masawa knows. Mm. He's not hiding to nothing. No matter what he does, if he loses to somebody young to make him a bigger star he diminishes his own value. If he gets Kabashi or Teyu or uh, Kawada to do it, the four pillars, it reduces them as well, which he isn't prepared to lose because they're his three biggest money makers aside from himself. So he's kind of booked within a corner and does express that he wants to try and do something different, to talk to other companies, to have the big money matches that... Baba refused because he didn't need them. He had them mm. within his own company. And to have one or two big name matches with, say, Muta or with Masahiro um, Chono or Shinya Hashimoto, and wouldn't that just kind of like pop the crowd? You could fill the dome a couple of times, make some money and kind of wait and then rebuild your new stars from that have been made through that particular series. Yeah. But Baba didn't want to do that. Well, it was Mazal wanted to modernize the product. Essentially, that was yeah. that was kind of the thing. And it's interesting because I I wonder if people looking back on on Mazawa now w- would maybe associate him with that. Probably not because he was so kind of in the mold of of old Japan and you know the respect and the the kind of you know the old school way of doing stuff that maybe people do kind of forget that he did have this big element of wanting to create new stars and particularly at that time and what he then did with with Noah which is interesting that you know they tried that in pro wrestling Noah quite a few times to create new stars in different ways and it didn't always pay off you look at like um Takeshi Rikio who like beat Kenta Kobashi for for the title like just just didn't work at all but again at least they were at least they were trying you know um and you know it's it's ironic I guess that Mazawa did as we touched on earlier end up sticking around years later than he should have done because there was kind of there was that difficulty in creating new stars that I think he felt like he had to stick around when Obviously, it w- he should have retired years earlier, really. So that's kind of the the sad irony of it in the end. Yeah, that's it. This is the this is what this is the year that lays the groundwork for what No would become. And mm. the next time we look at this, we'll go a bit further in depth on on the first voyage, as they called it, with Noah and yeah. building the international impact it had because 
All Japan was very much a Japanese product and didn't really get seen outside of Japan, the occasional, unless you were a tape trader. Mm. But Noah suddenly opens up the opportunity with the wrestling channel in the UK and uh, opportunities with Ring of Honor and the wrestling, worldwide wrestling market is a very different place. And the influence of Noah is much greater than the sum of its parts, I think. Yeah, 100%. Like, it, And it's interesting, like we mentioned earlier about that kind of isolationist policy that that all Japan had. And then, yeah, Mazawa creates this company, there's the exodus, and it, it flips very much the other way. Because, yeah, like, I was introduced to a lot of these guys through Ring of Honor. I'm sure a lot of other people are the same. Like, because I kind of came into wrestling like really got into wrestling around that era when Noah became the thing you know so when I, I wanted to like I would have loved to go and sort of dig out my old um power slam magazines from that era but there is a there is a pandemic on and they're all in my mum's house so I couldn't unfortunately <laughs> but I know they did sort of features on kind of the the importance of you know how big this mass exodus was and creating Noah and obviously at the time I just didn't understand like how sort of monumental that was now like looking back on it it's it's incredible to think that you take you know all you know most of the big guys from old Japan left and created a whole new company which is you know there's obviously kind of you could say there's an element now with how AEW came about but nothing on this scale like this was you know to, to lose like particular like Mizawa, Kobashi, Akiyama all all these big big names to go and form their own promotion and like you say become probably even bigger stars on the back of it because they got more US and worldwide exposure is is huge. Yes and it's, that's the next story to talk about with Noah, which is the exodus and the birth of Noah and the response all Japan have as well, because that's interesting. Every mm. action has an equal and opposite reaction. And Matoko Baba essentially set a hand grenade off in her own company. Yes. And there was, you know, there were big names that stuck around in all, all Japan as well, which is where yeah. things get interesting, which names stuck around and which names left to go to Noah. Yeah. I, in even when they'd left the seismic change that happened to all Japan pro wrestling, which is still felt today. Yeah. Years later is, is incredible. And the matches that the, that Matoko Baba booked as the leader of all Japan pro wrestling are also incredible as well. Mm. Um, and it becomes the most, we talk about the Monday night wars being the Monday night, the, the creative crucible for the attitude era in WWE and WCW. But what blew up the wrestling industry in the early 2000s is arguably for men's wrestling. Women's wrestling is already on its downhill slide, unfortunately, but men's wrestling is about to reach a creative peak that you have not seen in pro wrestling until quite recently. You know, it took yeah. 20 years for the rest of the world to catch up with what happened in all Japan pro wrestling and Noah and New Japan pro wrestling because all of wrestling benefited in this time period. It, it's quite remarkable. But it's something yeah. we'll in the next episode because we've been going for an hour and a half now oh yeah yeah we could i'm sure we could go much longer but yeah i'm, I'm excited to talk <laughs> about the formation of noah next and you know like when we do kenta kobashi's title reign that's i'm here for that <laughs> <laughs> so thank you for my guest today mr alex Watt. thank you for your time sir
Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's been it's been really fun revisiting this. Like I say, not not a show I'd seen, and to watch it in the context of what we know is going to happen in the next couple of years after this is is really fascinating. So yeah, thank you. <laughs> Thanks very much. Where can we find you on your social media, sir? Uh, I'm on Twitter at alexwatt187 for wrestling, football, politics nonsense. Usually, um, also yeah, if you if you follow football soccer myself and my wife have our football podcast did it cross the line uh at did it cross on twitter if you want to check that out there you go and you can find me at sheriff lone star on twitter you can find the show true penny show on twitter and you can find us on facebook the true penny show and you can find us on patreon where it'd be lovely if you gave us some money to cover our costs that would be nice if you could and keep the true penny show free forever for everyone well over 8,000 listeners in the last month, uh, or the last 30 days, I should say. The last month, we got 11,000 listeners for our coverage from the G1 Climax and through all of our history podcasts as well. We appreciate you listening to us. Um, thank you very much for listening to the show today. Uh, there should be Wrestling Rewind plenty. Dara O'Connor has just told me he has 13 episodes lined up. I don't know what him and Dave have been doing for the last two months. But when <laughs> they come back, they come back with a bang. and as you heard yesterday the world tag league investor super juniors coverage from the troop and a shows today at the world tag league investor super juniors which is the least catchy name i have come up with for a podcast ever but what else could i do today at the g1 sounds so snappy and i'll do that again and today at the world tag league investor super juniors tournaments doesn't sound snappy (laughs) what can i do i've got to be descriptive with that one so there we are Oh, the best of the, today at the WTLBOSJ. <laughs> yeah, the, the New Japan tournaments often don't roll off the talk. No, the G1 climax sounds like a tournament. It's meaty. I like that, but World Tag League is no. It's a bit <laughs> of a cracking tournament, by the way. Cracking matchup. Um, G.O.D. versus Finjuice was outstanding work today. I would appreciate you watching that match. It's possibly the best tag match I've seen this year. So, yeah, go have a look at that. Um, but, yeah, thank you very much for listening. We'll be back next week where we may indeed be looking at the birth of Noah because there's no big New Japan shows on this weekend, obviously, because they're in the middle of all these tournaments. But take care, and we'll see you soon. Bye! <laughs> Are you looking for the newest and hottest in the world of pro wrestling? Then check out the amazing action on powerslam.tv, the biggest indie pro wrestling channel in the world. Get over 6,000 hours of the best events from over 150 of your favorite promotions from 20 different countries around the globe. Brands like Progress Wrestling, Evolve Wrestling, Combat Zone, Defy, PCW Ultra, PWX, Over the Top, Shine, and hundreds of others with fresh content added every day for only $5.99 per month. Get your free trial today at powerslam.tv.